Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art and craft of motion imaging. For more information about the project and filmmakers discussed in this episode, as well as production images, visit the podcast section of our website at ASCMag.com. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm speaking with cinematographer Eben Bolter, BSC, about his work on Avenue 5, Armando Iannucci's science fiction comedy series about a luxury space liner that's knocked off course, casting its passengers and crew adrift among the stars. As bad news streams in from a stressed-out mission control on Earth, the facade of rule and order aboard Avenue 5 begins to break down, along with everything else on the ship. Iannucci's particular brand of comedy calls for a large ensemble cast, including Hugh Laurie, Josh Gad, Zach Woods, Rebecca Front, Susie Nakamura, and Lenora Critchlow, working in a highly improvisational fashion, something that Bolter was almost entirely unfamiliar with. The whole thing with this is that it's very sort of big budget HBO sci-fi set in space, but also a multi-camera comedy, which is something I never wanted to do ever. But it was, I was sort of put in a position where I couldn't say no to it, if you see what I mean. So I tried to just do something different in that world. But it is, it's sort of a funny thing to talk about, if you see what I mean, because it's not like a passion project where I shot it exactly how I want to shoot it. It's sort of one of those things where cinematography was very low down the the pecking order of what this show was about. So I had to just sort of approach it, um, trying to sort of be as cinematic and single camera feeling as I could whilst having to shoot four cameras at the same time at all times. And, you know, high page count, loads of actors, no rehearsals, all that kind of stuff. So this sounds like a project that found you uh, rather than the other way around. Well, so when the project first came to me, the, the first thing I saw that it was Armando Iannucci, you know, directing and show running for HBO and that it was set in space. So as just a headline, you know, from my agent, that was something I had to read. I wanted to know more information about it. I mean, like I said, I traditionally shoot sort of single camera shows, you know, I've, I've, I've done something like, I think 15 feature films now and, and three TV series before this, and they've all pretty much been single camera, you know, occasionally two cameras, but I've been able to go in and, and light shots and really get into sort of cinematic storytelling. So, you know, multi-camera and, and comedy wasn't really anything I, I don't want to say that I was interested in, but I, it's not really, I don't watch much of it. And I didn't really have any interest in, in shooting something like that. But with Armando, you know, it's different. I, I think Armando, everything he's done has just been absolutely brilliant. And photographically, you know, that's, it's not, you know, the, the cinematography element of his stuff hasn't really been front and center. It's much more about performance and improvisation and, and, and the comedy aspect. But the idea of him doing something in space, I just sort of had to know more, you know, it just really sort of piqued my interest of what that would look like and what he even wanted to do. So, you know, I read the script. I thought it was funny, very smart. And I went to meet with him, you know, at Warner Studios where they were already prepping, already building. 
And I had this sort of crazy interview. It was like a three hour, a three hour interview. You know, usually you meet a director for a coffee for 45 minutes and that's it. But this was, I met the director, I met the writers, I met producers. I then met the production designer. We walked around the stages. We went through concept art and the whole sort of project was just so overwhelmingly big. I mean, it was just incredibly seductive from, from a sort of scale point of view, but also Armando wanted to, he, he was very interested in not doing the thick of it. He didn't want to use zoom lenses and completely, you know, finding it on the fly. He, he sort of put to me, you know, how cinematic can we get with this? What can we do? You know, he was, he actually, it seems like a ridiculous reference, but the main reference visually was interstellar, Nolan's interstellar, um, which, you know, from how it was made perspective, couldn't really be more different, but just as a challenge to me, you know, that really did sort of pique my interest of what would this look like if I, if I attempted to do this, what would that end up looking like? Because I'm going to have to facilitate cross shooting, um, not just with two cameras, but with four cameras, which is one of Armando's requests, but he does also want to sort of make this as cinematic as possible. So uh, I do tend to like personally like spaces rather than faces, as they say. Um, and I wanted to sort of push the limits of that as well. You know, I, I didn't know if I was capable of lighting these vast sets in a way where people could move through them and we could cross shoot. And, you know, you'd be able, you'd have enough, you know, obviously level to see people and for all the sort of comedy and performance to be visible, but also to have some sort of cinematic interest to the, to the color contrast, to the light contrast. And so in, in a way that I would be happy also photographically. So yeah, I just thought that challenge was really, really interesting. And I thought if I kind of approached it in an incredibly modern way, just using LED integrated fixtures as much as possible and embracing imperfections rather than chasing perfection, which I think a lot of sort of multi-camera stuff, you know, tends to sort of overlight, if anything, I wanted to sort of underlight. And yeah, I just thought even if I sort of fail, it'll be interesting because I'll sort of approach it my way. And just, uh, I just thought, yeah, sort of a fresh approach to a multi-camera comedy could be interesting. Why do you think you got the call to do this show if it's not the kind of thing that you're known for, or even really ever expressed any interest in doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Zach Nicholson has been Armando's DP recently, and Zach also comes from a drama perspective. And I think Armando watches a lot of drama. And he had seen a couple of things I'd done. He'd seen a, a Netflix film that I'd shot called iBoy, which was a sort of high concept sci-fi film um, where we did some relatively interesting things. At the time of my interview, I was, I was shooting a sci-fi series for Amazon called The Feed. And The Feed was set 40 years in the future, all kinds of futuristic sets. And I, he had seen some early stuff from that as well. So, you know, I, I think... Yeah, I, I think Armando, he doesn't really go after necessarily comedy people. I think when it comes to his heads of departments, he actually looks for people who he likes their work and he just wants to sort of, he puts a lot of faith in us, basically. So the production designer, me, the VFX supervisor, he really gives us a lot of freedom to sort of bring ideas to him. He doesn't come in with sort of heavy, specific ideas. He wants someone who he likes their work and he trusts. And then he really does give you an awful lot of power. So, yeah, I think I just got lucky that he had seen iBoy or, or something else that I'd shot and, and decided to meet me. When you say that you want something to be as cinematic as possible or, or to be more cinematic, what does that mean? 
Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's a classic question, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I think for me, when people say cinematic, you know, it can mean all kinds of things. For me, it usually just means it's as simple for me usually as visually ambitious. You know, when I think of, of classic cinema and, and, you know, pushing the boundaries and, and, you know, vast visual storytelling that, that, that moves people and, and conveys story without words, you know, that, that's, that's cinema to me. It's almost like a, a standard to sort of try to live up to, you know, I, if you watch everything, Spielberg films, whatever, you, you, you know, what you take from that is just a real visual ambition. And that to me is, is usually cinematic. So I think it's hard to say whether my work is cinematic. I, it's just that I, I, I try for it to be, you know, that's, that's always the ambition is to sort of try and convey story, whether it's through lighting, through camera movement, through composition, to always be sort of trying to, to convey something more than just what's written on the page. And yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess in general, uh, you know, comedy, um, uses less of that just, just because performance is everything in comedy. And, and I completely agree with that decision. So for this, it was a case of how can I, how can I sort of have my cake and eat it too? How can I give him as much freedom as possible with the actors, you know, getting as much coverage, give them flexibility, but also try to be ambitious with our shots, try to sort of tell some story and try to sort of use lighting to convey emotion as well. So that, that was the challenge. So how do you begin to take on a challenge like this? Well, on this, so this is set, as I say, 40 years in the future on a spaceship. So in this case, where I began was with production design. I mean, we were building uh, a spaceship, you know, and this is a sort of cruise liner spaceship. It's a sort of, if you imagine a kind of a Trump hotel or casino in space. So it's this sort of large, vulgar, supposed to be luxurious, but it's just sort of missed the mark in a few areas and it has a sort of crudeness to it. So, you know, with the size of these sets, you know, our biggest set um, was, uh, we were at Warner Studios, we had four stages. Our biggest set was 250 feet by 150 feet and 60 feet high. It was absolutely colossal. It had three floors, working glass elevators. And, you know, Armando wanted the ability to be able to start on the third floor on one side, get into the lift, go down two floors, walk across the atrium, walk up the staircase right up to the third floor on the other side. So he really wanted the ability to just completely be 360 in this space. Um, so, yeah, my, my first challenge was to sort of figure out how I was going to light the kind of the corridors where there's, there was nowhere for me to hide any, you know, film lights. So I had to get into integrated lighting and, you know, led strips and using practicals. So my, my prep on this was actually six months, which is a, a long time for, for TV. And yeah, it, in those early days of prep, really, I was just working with the art department, with the production designer, looking at their 3d sketches of the set and, and, you know, saying, I, I, I'm going to need something here. I need this kind of thing here. Maybe we can integrate something into here. And yeah, we ended up with five kilometers of LED strip on the set, all completely color controllable. So then it became thinking about, because we're in space, we didn't have any weather. You know, it's always black out of the windows. Um, we decided early on that we weren't going to sort of play sunlight through windows. We were going to sort of say there was some sort of electronic glass that filtered the light or, you know, whatever. Um, this was mostly due to the, the set being so big, it was right up into the fire lanes uh, of the stage. There was nowhere 
you know, I, I wouldn't be able to get a sunlight far enough away for it to, to not be ridiculous. We started to think about without any weather in space, the ship itself would have to sort of automate its lighting for a kind of a day wake up mode for a sort of evening mode and maybe a middle of the night mode. You know, I think the people who would make a cruise ship would probably do the same thing. So it became about designing those three looks in, in the main space just from a, as if we were really making this ship for people to, to sail in. So we sort of designed those three looks in the computer. Then it became about me, you know, I, I had to think about that. Is that, does that work for the ship if the ship was real? And then does it work for me as a cinematographer, giving me enough level, giving me, you know, some mixed sources and just, you know, is there going to be enough light in people's eyes? All those usual things. It's, it was just sort of, making the space as film friendly as possible. And then you what brought in standing lights and handheld lights for certain situations? It was it was incredibly rare. I mean, wh- what I'd say is um, the entire of that massive stage was 100% LED. Um, there was, like I say, five kilometers of LED strip. There was all kinds of practicals, all LED, all Wi-Fi, all RGB, WW. I did, over the main atrium, have two soft boxes, which were filled with sky panels. And then I did have, on the outer edges of the ship, I did have a few other sky panels. So I'd be able to sort of just pick some edges out of people when they're near windows. So I did rig a few film lights in the middle of the atrium, but there were just so many areas where there were just these long tunnels. And the design of the ship was this white curved, quite reflective surface. So we just quickly found that, you know, if we had a sky panel on the floor, you know, we were just chasing reflections around. And also just the ability, you know, if you're shooting four cameras and you've got a a fixed ceiling and every surface is curved, there really wasn't anywhere to hide. So it was very, very rare that I had a sky panel on the floor, Um, even rarer that I had any diffusion or any, any sort of negative fill or anything like that. I really did have to uh, light the space, do as much testing as possible and just be, be locked into a look. Almost everything seems to be a practical, like everything has a kind of a glow to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there'd be things like Judd has this um, conference room, which looks like it's the, the, the inside of a sort of a tree almost. It's got these unbelievably beautiful curved wooden walls. And I, I knew for that, that I, I needed a sort of a relatively soft central source to just live above the table. And so we went down the route of chandeliers and then Simon, the designer came up with this beautiful idea of these um, semi-opaque white pipes. I think there was something like 70 of them all sort of shooting down from the ceiling to almost look like a kind of upside down iceberg. And we just shot light down through that and it bounced around and, and sort of created this sort of beautiful, yeah, almost like a softbox, you know, it's sort of a, a chandelier that had a sort of diffusion naturally to it. So that was a case of, uh, you know, I just, I knew I needed something relatively soft and central above that table to make that room work for everything we needed to do. And the designer came up with this beautiful idea. And there'd be other things. I mean, you know, we had like down by the bar, we would have these huge sort of column pillar lights that, that worked on an aesthetic level, but also gave me this beautiful, soft, warm light. And, you know, the usual things like instead of um, having table lamps in the restaurant, we had, again, these kind of iceberg type designs, which was sort of uh, there was actually 3D printed, I believe, um, semi-opaque material that diffused LEDs inside beautifully. And I could just dial in, you know, any color to those. So if we decided we wanted them to be red for a scene, you know, two seconds, they were all red. 
let's go back to what you said before about lighting spaces, not faces, because this seems to be kind of like the ultimate example of that, but still with so many faces. So do you find that you still have to take that into account? You have to build in more safety is what I'd say. You know, I mean, um, because we have the ensemble, you, you, you just never know where people are going to be. We tend to start with a wide shot. So at least we had a chance to know where people were, but really we weren't laying marks. We weren't rehearsing things properly, you know, for our operators and focus pullers, it was a real baptism of fire of let's just see what happens. And, you know, between takes, actors would just do crazy things and be in different positions. And we were trying to sort of keep up with all of that whilst trying to not be handheld and zoom lensy. So, you know, it was a real sort of clashing of styles, but hopefully in a good way in that case. And yeah, when it came to lighting, one thing I really tried to do was always to have color contrast. I, I, I didn't want this to just be a completely neutral, you know, tungsten balanced show. I always wanted to have two different sources in every room and every space. So there'd always be a little bit of coldness a little bit of warmth just gently clashing on people's faces so that was the sort of main thing i was figuring out in prep is where in this room you know is, is either a, a black spot or is a bit too neutral in one direction and maybe we need to find a motivation for something cooler or warmer to offset what stop were you shooting at yeah, well, I actually, I tended to light the sets to a 5.6, um, and then we'd put in an ND6 to take it down to a 2.8. So it, so most of the show was at a 2.8. On occasion, if we were on, you know, if we were on a three shot on a relatively wide lens, and I just wanted it to be just that little bit more shallow, we'd drop down to a T2. But we shot on the Summicrons, which that T2 is wide open. So, you know, we never got more silly than that. And yeah, I mean, to be honest, absolutely honest, you know, 2A isn't, you know, the greatest stop in the world. It's relatively reasonable. But I just had very, I did really have just talented focus pullers. And, you know, you get, there's the odd buzz here and there. But with the nature of their performances and what's happening, you know, those buzzes are corrected very quickly. And 99.9% of the time, you know, we were fine. It was very rare we went again for focus. And I think even in the pilot, you, you know, there is the odd buzz that's, that's in the show, but it's usually attached to an improv or a piece of performance where that you know supersedes it that's more important so why lay to a five six if you're just going to use neutral density filters all the time yeah good question <laughs> why do i do that i think i do that for for contrast you know it, it's something to do i i when I shoot feature films, I tend to shoot anamorphically. And I think just my comfort zone of lighting is between a T4 and a 5.6, just from using sort of vintage anamorphic lenses. So that that's really, that's just sort of how I learned to light, I think. And, and I'm just sort of comfortable at those levels. I, I think those levels work really well with practical lights. They just work. I, just, I don't know. That, that's how I learned to light. So it's interesting then. So you're just adjusting your T-stop to the look that's required for the show, which was what, like um, uh, two eight? I mean, there were definitely shots that were four or five, six uh, on occasion. If, if something was on a, a much longer lens, you know, occasionally we would be on a really long lens and I'd definitely go to a five, six. And I had that ability to do that with that light built in. Let's talk about embracing imperfection. Yeah. Um, I, I love imperfection in lighting. I, I, I think 
I'm not very if if this was a sort of if every shot had to be lit impeccably with perfect soft light and everything is the perfect contrast ratio, I, I'm just not very good at that. That's I I, I came up from self shooting and low budget films and working with practicals and that's just how I've learned to light. And I I think there's this I, I love to sort of create I, I guess cinematic naturalism in lighting. So so things feel like they just happen to look like that. So it doesn't feel overly lit or um, you know, false in that way. And I, I, like I said earlier, I love, um, blending color and mixing color and the slight imperfections you get in that. So yeah, that's, that's something I just sort of leaned into in this. I thought that would be interesting for a multi-camera comedy to sort of embrace the odd shadow or, you know, slightly different exposures as people walk through a room, there's dark corners, there's brighter areas and just uh, coloring that's just slightly more interesting, hopefully. I mean, we used a relatively cinematic, um, you know, lookup table in camera. And yeah, I, I just always sort of tried to play with color. So something was happening. One thing to say about the main set as well is that those walls were completely white, very, very white reflective surface. And I, I sort of decided to myself quite early on, I never wanted them to read as white. That was just almost a little challenge to myself. So um, we tended to sort of have the whites just that little bit sort of warmer or yellow, um, pushing into orange when it was the evening mode. And in the middle of the night, we went into a sort of colder blue look. So there's always a sort of slight, um, you know, tinge to things um, rather than them being completely sterile and perfect. But it's not all white surfaces, though, right? Because the show takes place in different locations. Yeah, so on the, so there are, there's three worlds on the ship. We've got the the front of the ship, which is the sort of the luxury uh, area where the passengers are. That's the kind of casino area. Then back of the ship, which is where the kind of engineers and back of house stuff is, and that's actually a lot grungier, a lot more you know Ridley Scott alien type. Um, atmosphere. And then we do go down to earth as well. We've got mission control, we've got the white house, you know, various other scenes on earth. So we did want to differentiate those three worlds through lighting for starters, but also through camera operations. So uh, at the front of the ship with the passengers, we wanted to things to feel cinematic and, and sort of stable and calm. So we're mostly on track, uh, occasionally gimbal and lots and lots of Steadicam. Um, I guess the only problem with Steadicam is if you're following people around, you know, it's hard to get four cameras in there. So that's when we'd sort of lead and follow and shoot a little bit more single camera when we were doing that. Um, at the back of the ship, we'd go into handheld a little bit more um, for the sort of grungier areas. And then down on Earth, that's where we decided to really lean into classic Iannucci with the sort of thick of it style. So that's when we went onto our zoom lenses, 100% handheld, no no tripods, no dollies, nothing like that. And we really just sort of went for it with the punch, punctuation zooms and all that stuff. Did the multi-camera aspect of production influence your choice of camera? I'm pretty loyal to, to Ari when it comes to, to cameras. Um, I haven't shot on anything else for about five years now. So, you know, Alexa si color science and, and just the, the reliability of the Alexas was a bit of a no brainer. And because of having four cameras and limited space, quite a lot of steady cam and gimbal work and some handheld, you know, the mini was the obvious choice. We did actually test the, the LF. The LF was released when we shot and it was actually, uh, you know, credit to HBO for a, a note on that when I was in, cause when I was in, testing, you know, the LF, it's a brand new camera. I was seduced by that and, and was interested in shooting. And their point was, we've got these 
tremendously large sets and did we really want to have you know shallower depth of fields and and with with the nature of how we shoot with a relatively improv style you know the problems that could also come with that and i thought it was exactly right and there were shots where you know by shooting on the super 35 alexa mini format i could stop down to a four or a five six as mentioned before and just you know take in all of that depth which was real you know that that main set wasn't really augmented with vfx at all apart from the view out of the windows and so that's why we settled on the minis i want to go back and talk about how you distinguish between these different locations in the show through lighting yeah so so at the front of the ship it's the, the three sort of modes i mentioned earlier we've got the sort of daytime mode evening mode and night mode but they all had to feel designed by by judd industries it had to feel sort of luxurious and, and lit by a corporation at the back of the ship I, I wanted to sort of go into grungy territory like ridley scott alien but one thing to say about the overall look is we always wanted to be relatively colorful we didn't want to go desaturated and cold we wanted to really sort of have a rich warm palette and at the back of the ship i was using more fluorescent lights but i was i was going with you know green and and blue spiked fluorescents i was using sodium i was using you know mercury vapor sort of any excuse really to sort of have some sort of grungy industrial color back there lots of reds as well so it was a lot more varied at the back of the ship and i also decided well, we also decided that the thing i said about the sunlight so the sunlight didn't permeate the glass at the front of the ship but at the back of the ship we sort of decided that's because that's for the crew the glass there could be you know older or whatever and the sun would come through windows so it did give us the odd opportunity to sort of have some fun with sun blasting through windows in space at the back of the ship and then on earth it was about naturalism really i suppose i mean um we, we had a relatively elaborate color scheme for mission control itself but as soon as you leave mission control and go out into the world it's just the world um the only subtle thing we wanted to hint at was the idea that the, the earth has you know global warming's got even worse so it's incredibly hot down on earth so if ever we had a window down on earth i mean you know i've been trapped on this spaceship myself for so long with no sunlight through windows it was great to just be able to put you know an 18k through every window and and get some haze in there and really sort of lean into hot sun coming through windows and that that works quite well as a story thing for cast as well we were sort of dressing sweat onto people and really sort of playing with the idea that earth is um too hot so how closely is your approach to filming the show tied to its story? Yeah, I mean, um, I can't honestly say that when when we started the series, I mean, when I came on board, it was going to be, um, you know, a nine, a nine episode series. And when I looked at, you know, the sort of visual progression over the whole show, we didn't really map out a deconstruction of the show. You know, things weren't going to get, it didn't fall apart so much that visually I felt like it had to change too much. I was mostly, when it came to the whole arc of the show, I was mostly sort of concerned with color actually, and, and making sure that we were just really using a full rich palette. So as we were, every every sort of scene or, every, or not every scene, every new location or every new lighting state, my DIT would, would sort of take a keyframe of a wide shot and put it into this sort of color board that we developed. So I ended up with this sort of 
week by week, pretty much, I could look at an overall palette of the show and just see where the gaps were. It wasn't like the entire series was perfectly planned out when we started shooting. You know, midway through the shoot, it would be, okay, we've got four brand new sets coming up next week. Well, how are we going to light them? And I pretty much refer to this sort of color grid and look at the opportunities. You know, okay, we haven't really done green yet at all on this show. So let's work some green into there in a way that feels um, feels real. So yeah, I, I, was, I was sort of more interested in sort of filling out a rich colorful palette and i think the only way the the descendants into madness on the show was represented by by me was reacting on a day-by-day basis to the scenes and to the performance so as we get to these more manic and manic scenes i think we sort of tended to go maybe slightly more manic with the operating with with handheld a little bit more um there's a few scenes that are particularly manic in very confined spaces so we ended up on you know slightly wider lenses closer to actors handheld and it just introduced a bit more of a sort of visceral close intense feel but that just came out of the scenes you know that wasn't really by design before we started it just sort of it was just reacting on a day-by-day basis while watching the show it seemed to me that the variations in color contrast uh, became more pronounced as the season progresses well, you know, I think partly that's being on a show for 11 months and me sort of wanting to keep things interesting and, and just sort of trying and and trying new things and pushing the limits of things. That's the thing on a show this long is, you know, you go a little bit mad, you know, 11 months on one show. It's the longest I've ever done. And, you know, by the time we got to episode seven, eight, nine, and we're trying to fill out that palette, you know, really, I had I had um, I'd done most color combinations. And so then it became, OK, let's how can we sort of what, what can we do that's different to make this feel different? And so the audience know they're in a new space. And so, yeah, we probably did start to get a bit more interesting, more creative as the show went on, just because I guess we were, uh, yeah, just to keep it different, we sort of had to. And I guess we were slightly emboldened by still being on the show, frankly, you know, we hadn't been fired. So let's keep pushing the limits and try and do something, you know, more and more interesting. And that's 11 months, including your prep. Yeah, that's right. So, so the schedule was, um, it was six, it was a six month prep and then a five month shoot. Um, the way the shoot went, it was pretty much two weeks per episode and then they'd have a week of rehearsals in between. So it's sort of three weeks per episode with a week of rehearsals. And during those rehearsal weeks, I would go back into prep and, you know, pre-light sets and talk about upcoming sets. So it was a sort of constant process of shooting and prepping the whole time, um, which enabled me, you know, very luckily to be able to DP every episode. I think usually for a show like this, you'd have two or three DPs and do blocks, but I was able to just roll from one episode to the next the whole time, which worked really well, I think. Um, one thing to say actually as well is we had a fire. So that, that was a, a, a big dramatic event. Um, our big set that I spoke about, the 250 by 150 foot set, uh, burned down. We had a, I just, I got a, a phone call at 5am on a Thursday morning on a shoot day saying not to come to the studio because the set was on fire and there was a fire overnight. It burnt for 15 hours, um, and completely destroyed our biggest set, which was, you know, I guess, well, in theory it was catastrophic, but we're talking about the atrium, right? It was the main atrium. Yeah. And that's totally crazy. At, At what point in production did this happen? 
Well, so yeah, that was, we had two episodes to go. So we'd shot seven, we had two to go. So, you know, luckily nobody was hurt at all. Everything was insured. So, you know, it just meant that creatively the writers had to suddenly write around the atrium. So we had to find new reasons and, and it really, it pushed us, it pushed us out onto location a little bit. We would go into sort of restaurants, you know, uh, in London and black out the windows and say it's on the ship. And it actually, it sort of forced us to be even more creative at the end of the shoot so it was probably for the best in the end but that was yeah it was pretty dramatic at the time um but we only lost one day of shooting you know we we were lucky that we had three other stages yeah one day off and then we were straight back in shooting again so was this uh warner brothers studios in the uk it is leaveston studios yeah it's like even with six months of prep uh, a fire isn't really something that you can prepare for is it? Well, what I was going to say is I, I think so often in films, we've got these perfect ideas of, of films or TV. We have these perfect ideas of what something would, can be. We do all this prep. We do storyboards, previs, and all of these ideas and ideas. And then you get there on the day and there's usually a constraint. And that constraint kind of throws everything out the window and you end up actually doing something creatively on, on the spot in the moment that's almost always better than what you'd preconceived. I mean, there's that documentary, uh, the Lars von Trier five constraints film where, uh, have you seen that? Where he has to remake uh, the same film five times and each time he's given constraints. And, and what's incredible in this film is, you know, the first one is uh, no shot can last longer than 12 frames. Um, so that's, you know, it's cutting like that, not being a studio, it had to be in Cuba or whatever, you know, there's these constraints. And from all these constraints, you end up with these incredible pieces of art, these beautiful films. And the interesting thing, not to spoil the documentary, but in one of them, the constraint is that there's no constraint. And that's the hardest of all, you know, when, you, when you're given that complete, you know, blank check, open freedom, it's like, well, what do we do? So I think, you know, the way that relates to this, when the fire happened, we lost that beautiful stage and it felt like a disaster. Really, it was like, okay, well, that's gone now. So, so what are we going to do? And that forced creativity and it forced us to think on our feet and come up with new sets and new solutions. And to be honest, it probably made the show better. You know, we wouldn't obviously have wished for that to happen, but it did happen. And that's, that's how we had to react to it. Is there a difference between how you shot the show and the work that you did in the color grade? Uh, no. So I did, I'm, I'm big on LUTs. When I did, I did a show called White Dragon for Amazon and I had something like 30, I can't remember, 37 LUTs for that show, which is ridiculous, but it's true. That's, that's what I did. And, and then on this one, I went back to basics and I wanted to just have one show LUT. So I did a lot, you know, we did, had two weeks of camera testing. I worked with uh, Dan Coles at Technicolor in London and I wanted to start from a sort of Kodak base starting point. And then we added, we added a bit more contrast to it from there. I pulled down the mids a little bit and added a little bit more yellowness to the whites. And that was pretty much it. It was a relatively simple look that was incredibly versatile. And I did think I was probably going to have an earth lut, a back of ship lut and a front of ship lut. But I ended up with just one show lut that I, that I loved. And because I had an onset DIT who could live grade, but also more than that, the ability, you know, with all this integrated LED lighting, I could sit there at the monitor and just add a point of green to the entire set or, or tweak a light. So it really did feel like I could kind of grade 
you know, live uh, on set. So we ended up with with rushes, with with everything that, uh, well, with an edit, an offline that everybody was just really happy with, myself included. So the grade became about, you know, there's a little bit of balancing between cameras or, you know, lenses, sensors, things like that. Um, in a scene and, you know, occasionally a bit of balancing with sunlight going in and out on earth scenes, but pretty much for a lot of shots, really the, the offline is, is identical to what the finished product is. And, and Dan was, you know, the, the colorist was incredibly supportive of that as well. We, we sort of did the, the homework in prep and we're happy with where we were. So the grade actually became um, quite easy. Do you think that having put yourself outside of your comfort zone and kind of stepped into a world that you were unfamiliar with, maybe now you see that you're capable of, of doing more than you thought you were before? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I, I, I think, I hope I'm still at the very beginning of my career. Um, you know, I, I feel like this is, I'm very much in the early stages of my career. And I, I try to be um, as selfless as possible when it comes to sort of what I offer as a cinematographer. I like to come to things. Um, I, I try to listen to directors. I try to to um, really tune into what what it is they want and what it is the story should be. So I, I don't come into things going, this is my style. This is how I shoot. Do you want that on your project? It's just not how I work at all. And I think on every project, I think it's great to be out of your comfort zone and to feel a bit nervous because, you know, it means you're trying something new and you're learning something. And this really was the ultimate for that because um, it was way out of my comfort zone in terms of the way of shooting. Um, you know, these were the biggest sets I've ever seen, let alone had to light. And it was just a way of working that I didn't know if I'd be able to do or not. So, you know, I don't comedy and multi-camera comedy isn't at all really what I want to do long term. But I learned so much on this project and enjoyed it so incredible. I mean, you know, with those actors to be to have a front row seat to some of their performances and just watching them improv. I mean, it was, you know, it was for I think I'd say for a lot of my crew, this was probably one of the best jobs they've ever done. I mean, it was certainly the most funny job I've ever done. Um, it was incredibly entertaining. And I, I learned so much that hopefully now, I mean, currently I'm in New Orleans prepping a, a single camera genre thriller, which is much more what I love, what I like to do. But I've ta I, there's so many things I learned on Avenue 5 that I can actually bring into this that maybe I would have done differently otherwise. So, yeah, I think you learn on every project. And it's just I, I hope I'll always continue to learn. I, I don't think I mean, wasn't it? I think Deacon said when he was 62 or something that he felt like he was just now starting in terms of he, he how did he put it? He put it in a much more eloquent way than that. But he was basically saying he felt like he was out of training age 62 with 12 Oscar nominations or whatever it was at the time behind him. And I'm, I'm a lot, I'm 30 years away from that. So for me, it's, it's very, very early days and it's just about learning on every project. That was Eben Bolter, BSC, talking about his work on the HBO series, Avenue 5. Thanks for listening. My name is Ian Marks and you can find more podcasts and articles on the art and craft of cinematography at the American Cinematographer website, ASCMAG. Com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. For your complete cinematography resource, visit ASCMag.com and subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine.